What fresh hell is this? Mommy! Where are my damn glasses? Alicia, it's your mother. When you get a chance, give me a call, please. Thank you. Has anybody seen my phone? Mom! Mom! Honey! Oh, shit. I think something's burning in the kitchen. Where are my damn glasses? Mama! Alicia, I just hung up with producers. They loved your read. They said you owned the room. Great job, sweetheart. But they're going in another direction. Which direction? Away from you. Come on. Oh, great. Found my glasses. Hello, I'm Alicia Coppola. I'm an actress an author of Gracefully Gone on Amazon, hard copy and Kindle, shameless plug. Wife, mother of three kids, chef, laundress, maid, vacuumer of copious amounts of dog hair. But who I really am is a bootstrap bitch. I have pulled myself up by my bootstraps more times than I can count. Like most of my guests that you'll hear from on this podcast, I haven't always had it easy. Everyone has a story. Some of my guests are famous. Some are just famous in their own homes. Some are getting through or have gotten through major life ordeals, and others are just trying to make it through Monday. All of their transformational journeys are inspiring, aspiring, and courageous. We who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps don't bitch. We do. Welcome to Bootstrap Bitch. Yay! Yay! Uh, This particular episode of Bootstrap Bitch, I have, uh, gosh, this woman is so smart, so wonderful, so talented. I had the privilege of working with her twice. She is just director extraordinaire, Tanya McKiernan. Oh, well, thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) And here she is. And she's- It's like like crazy to sit there and have someone go, and I'm like sitting going, yeah, uh uh-huh. No, you have to receive it. So you and I met on Blood and Treasure. Right. Which was- what a wild ride that was, huh? That was crazy. And what was crazy about it was, was the first day we met, you were in a bad mood. But it was like, we just like clicked. Remember? Yeah. It was just like one of those things where it didn't matter. And I was like, hey, we didn't know you from, you know, you didn't know me. I didn't know you. And it was like, then we were down in the hotel, you know, uh, restaurant having dinner and drinks. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I. You know, that's the thing that I always say, or that I have been saying on on each uh, interview that I do, there's this weird kismet thing that I feel with certain types of people, where I can Mm -hmm. look at them and say, I see you. I see you. And in that moment, you saw me. Mm -hmm. I was away from my husband, away from my three kids. I'm in Montreal. It's fucking raining outside. It's like I'm trying to, you know, put food on the table. And and I'd pretty much had enough. And you yeah. got it. No, I, hey, you know, it's one of those things where I think um, one of the things I always try and do is not have uh, expectation of, especially with actors, it's like, you'll hear things about not you, but like other actors, Oh, that person's difficult or whatever. And then I meet them and that's not the case. Right. You know, it's usually that, um, a lot of times I find that, um, a lot of actors, especially ones that have been doing it forever, you know, get treated like they just started yesterday, (laughs) you know? And, (laughs) and then you get, you know, then, and then they get grumpy because they're being told, you know, 
you know, when to, you know, to touch the button of the elevator on this line. It's like, come on, let's have a little bit of respect for, you know, for this person who's been doing this for a very long time, or even if they hadn't been doing it for a very long time, like let them participate in, in the making of the episode or the show or the movie that you're doing. Like you don't need to tell an actor exactly what to do, when to do it. Let them bring their craft to the table. You'll be surprised. Exactly. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think, I think most do, but the, the, the powers that be within our industry, I think they feel that we're like the help. That you can just order us about and we're going to tap dance. When the fact of the matter is, the directors, producers, right? You have nothing if you don't have the actor. Right. You have right. an empty room and a, you know, an inch full of papers. I mean, that's what you have. Right. And what you just said is really important because we all want to feel like we're in this together. You know, there's no I in team. And that's well, and what, I think, and, that and I think that's how everybody on a set wants to feel like they're, I mean, I, you know, it's, um, is it uh, Google who's, who they treat their employees like, like they're part of the family and, and, you know, and it's this idea that it's teamwork. And I don't know where we got to this point where one person feels like it's just them. It's mm -hmm. just because of them. And it can be a writer, it can be an actor, it can be a director, but it's like, no, it's a, it, it's 65 people that have come together to create this thing, you know, and you need each one of those people to accomplish it, you know? Yeah. So, so I, but I don't, I just don't get this, you know, and I, and I, and some directors, you know, they, they don't mean to do it. They're not, but they, they have an idea in their head of the way they want it to be. But sometimes it's taking a, a, you know, a round peg and sticking it in a square hole. It doesn't fit. Your idea doesn't fit because your actor may not be able to do the thing that you want them to do. So then it's like, adjust adjust like don't beat that person over the head because they can't give you the performance that you had in your own mind maybe they can't do it so do, get, help them do what they can do and and maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised that it's better than what you thought it might be correct correct but it, it's just it's funny to me because I've, I've worked with some um newer directors who are really great but they've done that that thing and it's like and it's fear and they want to prove themselves and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then you've got the seasons, seasoned directors that have been there forever that do it because, I don't know, it's ego, you know? Mm -hmm. But I, oh, see, I knew I was going to get a phone call. Um, but, um, so anyway, so, you know, there's, there's all of that. But I think when we met, you were having the bad day that day and... Um, but you came out of it, like you, you came to the set and we talked about your limp because you were limping in and you're like, I think I should be. And I was like, oh, that's totally fine. And then you just completely <laughs> were fine. You were like, oh, okay, sure. And we had a great time. Yeah. Gosh, I, I hope I wasn't too much of a monster. You weren't a monster at all. Okay, good. You weren't a monster at all. I think <laughs> what was happening was, I think you had heard that... 
somebody, and I don't even know who it was, wanted you to do something different than what you had understood was supposed to happen. So I think you were coming, I think you were coming in wanting to discuss it because you were like adamant about the fact that you wanted to do this one particular thing. And I think it was the limp. And I was like, oh no, that's totally fine. Or I don't think it was the limp. I think it was that you, it was a timeline thing. It wasn't even a story thing. It was like you had just, your character had just gotten injured. Right. And then all of a sudden you weren't walking with a cane and you were like, right. Well, well this just happened yesterday. Why wouldn't I be wearing, you know, and I was like, that's fine. You can walk with a cane. I don't care. Right. And you were like, Oh, okay, cool. Okay, great. Yeah. 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 But that's, but that's how it works on sets too. Cause it's like somebody who's not in the room says, Oh yeah, I heard you're not what you're not using a cane. <laughs> and you're like, what? What do you mean I'm not using the cane? And I'm, and then you get to set. I'm like, Oh no, no, you're using a cane. You're like, Oh, okay, good. See? so easy and that's all we want i mean isn't that what anybody wants is just to be heard oh, totally and just to be taken into consideration but well, yeah but the and reason- to be protected right you don't want somebody like because i have the most respect for for actors because you guys have to emotionally go to places that we sit there and, and we sit there and we criticize you for the places that you have to go you know, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, your tear didn't fall down the, your face at the right moment. Could you do it again? Right. <laughs> you know? <Right>. It's like, <laughs> right. what? Right. But, see, that's what makes you the director that you are, and which is why I shadowed you and trailed you, is to learn how you do what you do, and you do it very effortlessly. Oh, thanks. You, you come to set, and, and so what I, well, let me finish that thought. You always came to set with grace and with an open ear and an open eye and an open heart and mind to whatever any of us wanted to talk about or to try or to play with. And I'm wondering for, you know, for our viewers, Tanya's father was the late, great Stephen J. Cannell. Is that right? Cannell? Cannell's right, yeah. Cannell, great. People will say Cannell, but, yeah, no, you know. Cannell, uh, who I had the privilege of testing for. He was an incredible man. I remember meeting him on two different occasions back in, I think, like, 96, 97. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, for two of his shows. And we sat and we chatted. But you were a child of this great television innovator. What was... What was that like? And is that why you went into this field? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I started because I wanted to be an actress, <laughs> like everybody does. Right. Um, and, uh, but I'm dyslexic, like my father, so I can't cold read. So I went to college as a drama major, and I couldn't get... I actually got into USC, but I didn't, I didn't um, go there for two reasons. One, it, it's in LA, and my family lives in LA and I didn't, and my dad was like, Oh yeah, you can come home for dinner on the weekends. And I'm like, no, no, I got to go away. So I was 18 and I, so I went to university of the Pacific, which um, had a drama department, but no film department. It was like the farthest, I mean, the place that I shouldn't have gone to become a director, but at that point I wanted to be an actress, but I can't cold read. So I can't look at, I can't read something for the first time and act it. I get, I get uh, messed up on the words. 
So, um, so I was always like stage manager, assistant stage manager until my senior year. Um, I did a monologue, an old English monologue, and I can't remember what the play was. Um, and I did it for my class and then everybody started to see that I actually could act. And so then I got, um, cast in my first play my senior year. Uh, and then I had written a play and directed it for the stage and I had all my sorority sisters in it and it was a one night performance. It was the bane of my existence trying to get my sorority sisters to, to act, but the, uh, dress rehearsal, we, we did it and for some reason it all just came together. And so I sent everybody home and I'm like, just, you know, tomorrow let's just have fun. And we, we, my dad flew up and we did the play and it was like, I got big bit by the director bug. Two days later, I went to my class that I did this project for. And, um, they, and I said to them, I said, if you had asked me, you know, a week and a half ago, whether I wanted to ever do this again, and I would have told you hell no, but, it was such a great performance. I mean, I still have the play. Oh, wow. Um, and it, it was really fun. I mean, the, the, my dad kind of helped me plot it out. It wasn't originally what I wanted to write, but it was fun. And I read it now and I'm like, oh my God, I was actually pretty good at writing it. So um, then, I, then I graduated and I worked for Mario Van Peoples as his assistant. He's another person who um, Melvin Van Peoples was like, he was a director uh, who did a bunch of B films, I think, B movie films, but he was like um, uh, an icon within uh, black filmmaking. So Mario uh, worked on a show with my dad called Sunny Spoon. And um, so Mario did a movie called um, New Jack City. Oh, sure. And then after that, he did a, a movie called Posse. So um, before, right before he got Posse, I had graduated college and um, my dad, or actually my mom called Mario and was like, can Tanya be your assistant? She wants to be a director. <laughs> and so I was his assistant um, for a, a TV show that my dad was doing. Mario was directing the pilot. Um, and, uh, and then I think I sucked as an assistant. So then when he did Posse, uh, he hired me as a PA and I was no longer his assistant. Okay. <laughs> but I actually got paid, but, um, and it kind of put me in the AD route. Um, and then I ended up working, um, down in San Diego on Renegade as, as a assistant director. And, um, and then I did my first episode directing episode. I co-directed with my dad, but and how yeah. old were you then? I was 26 and I was pregnant with my first kid. Wow. So you did two episodes of Renegade? I did two episodes of Renegade and three episodes of Silk Stockings, I think. No, you did four episodes of Silk Stockings. Four episodes. Well, it was both, a long time ago. Both produced by your dad. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you've just done, I mean, your resume is like mine. It's like a roll of toilet paper the amount no, of no i know you just you just keep going and go and people are like how long have you been directing and, and i'm like 26 years yeah, yeah 26 years and what's really interesting and cool is how close our paths have crossed like we always kept missing each other whether it was ncis ncis la macgyver criminal minds bones monk las vegas i mean we've been in others orbit for and I'm up for jericho too you see you were up for jericho but i never got it well, that's too bad. I know. 
that will never happen again on any show that I am on. I know. That's, I was like, oh, bummer. And recently you've just been doing Supergirl. Uh, I did Supergirl. I, well, I did Supergirl. Um, Last year. Uh, no, I did it. I did it in January. I did Supergirl in January. And then I did Fear of the Walking Dead. Uh, uh, Fear was in Austin and I came home and I finished editing and maybe two days later, everything shut down. Everything shut down. Yeah. During all of this time, I don't know, was it last summer or spring that you were diagnosed with breast cancer? Yeah. Take me through that. How, because you've been working nonstop, working, working, working. You've been married for forever. You have three almost adult grown children, correct? Yeah, they're adults. Oh yeah, they're they're all out? The youngest one is 18 and will be going to college in two weeks. What was that like to be given that kind of blow and well, you to know, it's, go back to work. You know, it's funny. I've I, my whole life has been a bunch of blows, but I think what was interesting about um, being diagnosed with breast cancer was the fact that everything always happened to everybody else. Like for instance, my older brother died when I was 13 years old. My husband, when he was 50, ended up having a heart transplant, and then when I turned 50, I got diagnosed with breast cancer. And actually. My kids were like, you don't make 50 look good. You guys don't make 50 look great. My husband, you know, he's four years, almost five years out. No, four years. Yeah, five years out from the transplant. So, but what was interesting about getting diagnosed with breast cancer was the fact that it was happening to me. Like personally me. It wasn't happening. I mean, everything else happened and I was a part of it, but it wasn't happening directly to me. Mm-hmm. I had just come back from shooting Blood and Treasure in Italy, and right. I missed you because you didn't go to Italy. No, they sent me to Morocco. They sent you to Morocco. So, and I didn't go to Morocco because I had to go do another show. So I had come back, and I, I mean, to be completely honest, and I think that a lot of people don't know about the different types of um, things that can happen for you with breast cancer. So I was able to, like, express still express milk out of my nipples, not a lot, like a little bit. And it was green. Mm. And I, and you know, I didn't do anything about it for like 10 years. And of course I should, you know, I was getting, I was getting regularly checked and then I went and did the, uh, uh, thermography, you know, the thermal thing, because I didn't want to radiate my breasts or whatever. So I hadn't been doing the mammograms for about four years. And, um, cause I thought, you know, cause everybody's like, well, you need to, you know, you don't need to do the mammogram that won't, you know? So my sister had had a scare and she had clear liquid come out of her breast and she had already had her first child because my sister's 13 years younger than me. And, um, and so she went, she went, you know, she found a, um, a surgeon and she, she like, she had abnormal tissue in her breast that she had removed. And so my sister was like, you know, you need to go get that checked out. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll go. And I, you know, and, and I had switched OBGYNs and he was like, you need to do a mammogram. And I was like, I don't want to do a mammogram, you know, I, I, cause I don't want to radiate my, my breast, you know? And so he had given me a prescription 
to go get um, to go get the mammogram, and I called City of Hope, where where I normally would go, and they're like, no, the office has to call directly, and I was leaving in a week to go do Blood and Treasure, so I blew it off, and then I forgot about it, and then I did it when I when I came home, which was like almost a whole nother year later. So I went and I went to go see my sister surgeon, who's at Cedars, and um, and she did she, they did the mammogram and then i i went into the room with all the women sitting there in their pink robes you know and uh, and they call me out into the hall and say oh well we need to do you know an ultrasound you know we need to do it again so they did the they did the mammogram again then they did an ultrasound you know and it was like one of those things where these other women are looking at me like you know, we've been there, we know exactly what you're going through. And it's like the, the amount of tension in that room waiting for the doctors, because it's like you had finished your test and you sit in this room with all these other women. So the doctor comes in and then they're like, well, we need to do a biopsy. And, the, and she said, you know, don't worry about it. And what happened is, is that my breasts were very fibrous. So the, the mammogram couldn't see anything they had me come back. I did a biopsy and the biopsy came back and I had, um, stage one breast cancer. So then, then you talk about, well, do you, and it was only in one breast and the right breast. And it's like, do you remove one breast and not the other? And I had, um, I had, um, two different kinds of cancer. I had lobular cancer and I had, um, uh, uh ductal cancer. And so, and basically it's the most normal type of cancer that a woman can get because the, the cancer starts in your milk ducts. And then if you don't take care of it, it can breach the ducts and then go into the rest of your breast. And what was showing them that I had it was in the mammogram are calcifications that cluster in a certain way. And that suggests that you have cancer, but all of us can have calcifications. It's the way they cluster. Okay. So, uh, it was Valentine's Day, and my husband and I drove out to talk to the doctor after I, you know, when I found out, and, and she told us, and it was like, I freaked out. Like, I just started crying in the doctor's office, and, um, and it took me a good week to just sort of be okay with the idea that I had cancer, you know? And I was really lucky. I, I, you know, they, they, it was all in the right breast. They took it all out. <clears throat> I had two tumors, one of which they saw, the other one they never saw. <clears throat> they didn't see it. And I decided to take both because um, uh, my regular doctor said, you know, if they took off your other breast, would you, and they found out that there was nothing there, would you regret it? And I said, no. So I took both of them. I don't need them anymore. So I've had my kids. So um, I took both of my breasts and then I didn't have to do chemo or radiation, which I'm so lucky. Yeah. So, you know, it, it feels to me like a blip in my life. I mean, I have to take a hormone re reducing medication and I have to do a bone treatment every um, six months, but I don't consider myself that bad off. Like it was a, it was a scary experience to go through, but I came out on the other end and I'm, I'm still fine. I mean, I feel so bad. I mean, my sister has a friend who, uh, who 
was pregnant and she had found a lump and they literally induced the baby or a month early so that they could, so that they could take the, um, mass out. And it turned out that she ended up having brain tumors and had it in her, um, her brain fluid and she's, she's getting close to passing away and it's been a year, you know? So it's like, I sit there and I'm like, in, in terms of cancer, I'm like, I have nothing to complain about. Well, I find that there is something that unites all of the people that I have spoken to. And that is, they all say very similar things. They could be in the worst situation for themselves, but they always recognize the, the gratitude that they have for that situation because they're but for the grace of God. Yeah. That their neighbor has it much worse. Yeah. That is really, you know, the bootstrap bitch is pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and looking around and going, it could be that. So I'm grateful today. Well, yeah. And I think you, and I think you have to look at at things that way. I mean, I, I have struggled with depression throughout my life and a lot of it is through a lot of trauma that I, that I ended up going through in my life, but boy, getting cancer makes you go, what am I crying about? Like, right. You know, and, and I had, I had a lot of stuff that I had to work out, but I, I don't, I, I actually view the cancer as a gift to me because it, it allowed me to grow and do things differently. And everything is, everything in my life seems to be getting better and happier than it was when I started out. Cause when my dad passed away, um, uh, he, well, he was diagnosed with, um, cancer and he had melanoma and um, it had metastasized. And so when he told me about it, it actually brought up everything from my brother's death. So then it took me about 10 years and I worked through the whole thing. You know, it took me 10 years to, to really work that out because I think when my brother died, when I was 13, I just shoved it. I shoved it away, you know? Um, and I think I was really good at shoving things away. Like I got, I was raped, but I shoved it away. I explained it in a different way, you know, and, um, all that stuff just, you know, kept coming out that through that 10 year period. And I was like, oh my God, you know? So I think that, but the cancer was like, came at the right time for me where I'm like, okay, you know, I, can recognize how lucky I am in my life now, instead of being, instead of living in my past traumas, Mm -hmm. you know, which is why I think I'm the director that I am because I'm, because of the way that I am, I would allow a lot of things to happen to me that I should have put a wall up, you know, and now I've gotten better at protecting myself because I never protected myself. You know, it's sort of that old thing. Like they say, to, you know, to women and girls, like we have that voice in our minds that tell us to do one thing and we, and we always ignore it, you know, and that's when we get ourselves in like bad situations. I did that my whole life with everything, you know? And so I, now I'm like getting a lot better about expressing what I want or doing what I want and not feeling bad about it. 
Um, and I think the cancer gave me that gift because I started to look around and go, I mean, the question that goes through my mind now is, is this how I want to live the rest of my life? Sure. Cause who knows how long my life is going to be? Well, hopefully very, 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 very long. Right. But I think before I always felt like I was a victim of my own life and that I would never die and everybody else around me would die. I think it's what I would, I told myself when my brother died, it was like nothing would ever happen to me. And then when the thing happened to me, it freed me and let me realize that things can happen to me and that I'm just as important as everybody else. Growing up in Hollywood royalty must have been very well privileged, but then also I would think anxiety producing. I would think it might make a child feel invisible. And well, I think, I think what really ended up happening was it wasn't the Hollywood thing. It was, well, first of all, you know, my dad was, my dad was in Hollywood and, and, and created all his shows and stuff. But when he came home, he was just my dad. Like he didn't let us really go to the set. He didn't, we weren't, we lived in Pasadena. So we didn't live in, in Hollywood. So we weren't really surrounded by it. I think what ended up happening was that the, when my brother died, cause my brother was two and a half years older than I was. And I was, we were so close. It was crazy. When my brother died, my parents ended up having a second set of kids. So my same, same two parents, but so they had my, my brother, Derek and I, and then my mom wanted to have another kid when we were, when I was 13. So she had my sister and then she, and then my older brother died. And then my, uh, and then my mom got pregnant with my um, younger brother because she didn't think it took her so long to get pregnant with my sister that she thought that she wasn't gonna be able to get pregnant. And then she got pregnant immediately, like 18 months. She had another kid 18 months after my sister. To me, it kind of felt like I was a memory of the old life of what they had. So I, you know, I think it was, it was such a painful thing to happen to our family that I felt invisible or I felt like, I felt like a stepchild in a family where I wasn't a step. That's very well put. Yeah. So, um, and not, not against either one of my parents because they, I, you know, I was so pissed at them, you know, when I was growing up, because I was like, what about me? Can't you see me? Can't you see what I'm going through? But now that I have children, like, if I lost one of my kids, you know, what are you going to do? I think, I think one of the, the, the things that my parents had a hard time doing, and I, and I think more so my mother, was the fact that she never really recovered from it. I don't know how you would. No, but I do believe that you have to be there for your other children. Yes. You can't just check out because no. one of them passed away. Right. You know? It's not the same thing. Uh, the concept is, but my mother, after my father died, or while my father was dying, my brother and I were pretty much left to our own devices. You know, I was sent off to boarding school and then my brother was sent off to boarding school and my mother really did just kind of check out. And after she remarried her second husband and then he passed away, she just kind of wore that grief like a badge of honor. 
and just wouldn't turn the page, just wouldn't turn the page to get to a new page. Right. She just kept living in it. Yep. Because that was where she was comfortable because God forbid that she would move on. Well, yeah. And my mother, my mother in particular would get pissed off at everybody for not grieving the same way she Correct. did. Correct. But my mother's also bipolar. So, you know, I mean, I don't dementia, think, so. yeah, so I, yeah, so I don't, I don't know whether, you know, anybody could have grieved the way that she grieved, you know, and my, my, my way of dealing with it was to push it away, push it away, push it away. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, and that bit me in the ass when my dad, you know, it, all that, all that stuff that I took and pushed away, came back at me like a tidal wave, you know? And that is the commonality of all my guests is that everybody's been boxing with God, you know, and everybody's been shoving it and burying it and putting it away and sticking it in the back of the closet, you know, sweeping it under the rug. But then that one thing will happen. The one thing happened that kind of pierces, pierces the bubble pierces that what you think you're self-protecting because you're really not you're just not evolving right and if you're, and not, you're not feeling the pain of it you're not feeling the pain of it sometimes well I, I, actually i don't think sometimes i think all the time we need to actually sit in the pain of where we're at and what we're feeling in order to really acknowledge it and deal with it because if we don't deal with it it's going to affect all of our relationships, it's going to affect our body. I mean, I somaticize on a daily basis. And then I go, okay, why is my stomach hurting? What am I anxious about? What's going on? Did somebody hurt my feelings? What did my mother say something? What's in the bank? Do I, did I get the job? Did, and I have to kind of check in with myself to see whether what I'm feeling is a today feeling or is it something that tr is, was something today triggered from something that happened when my dad was diagnosed? You know, when my mother's second husband died, you know? Yeah. I, I think we, that's, that's the purpose of this podcast. Um, actually, selfishly, was for me to learn tools yeah. on how to evolve out of the darkness and not allow myself to spiral because that's my go-to. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other thing too, right, is the fact that's why we're artists, right? That's why we're in the business that we're in, you know, is, is I always say, you know, the entertainment industry attracts damaged people. And the irony is we're so sensitive and so damaged. We're, we should be bankers. Yeah. Because it's safe. Like I always say to myself, I am so sensitive. I'm so passionate. I'm so, you know, I, you know, depression and anxiety are my two best friends. Why did I become an actor? It's like, this is, this business is the worst thing in the world for somebody like me. But it's good for you because it allows you a re release, right? Yeah. Because if yeah. you're, if you're going to go do a, a, a character that has some of the same qualities or some of the same life experiences, you can get that energy out oh, and, yeah. it, and then it doesn't plague you anymore. But the thing is, is that, is that sometimes I think getting the en energy out, it's gotta be gotten out in the right way. Correct. You know, 
probably one of the traits that we all have too is go-getterness. Like I, I'm always like doing, 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 you know, and now we're in COVID, you can't do anything, you know? So you just got to sit here with your shit. Yeah. You can't just like, you know, go and, and do anything about it. Although the nice thing for me is I've, I've sat with my shit enough that now that we're in COVID, it isn't quite so bad, you know? Right. Um, and I'm, and I'm constantly looking at the positives and saying, you know, I was talking to my husband last night and we were saying, you know, with all the craziness that's going on in the world right now, I think we're going to start seeing some silver linings. Like we needed a shakeup. Our, our country needed a shakeup, you know, because we, we need change. We need, we need different things to happen, you know, and change is painful you know, and it wasn't just going to happen. And, and I was talking to a friend of mine, of mine today. And what I said was, is, you know, we, we as a country, people have been so angry and so upset before the, before COVID hit, you know, a couple, you know, four years worth almost, you know, and it's like, where is all that coming from? Like, like I get that people are mad and upset, but it's like, it just seems like all this energy that nobody, like they don't know what to do with it. It's like, there's so much anger and hate and like out there. And I, and I just sit there and go, well, why can't we just kind of accept each other and help each other grow and, and, and get to a higher place? You know, I don't, I don't understand, you know, what's going on, but I do feel like we will, we will, we will reap benefits from all this pain things will change, things will get better, you know, eventually, because I think we're all starting to see what the reality of the world is. Like, you can't hide from it. <laughs> well, I right certainly now. hope that you're, I think it's going to be our children who are going to make the difference. I think hopefully if we don't blow this whole thing up, we leave them with a planet, with a society where they take care of one another. But I think that that's already happening, right? Because even, even, not, not, not in big strides, like in small areas. Like if you, if you think back to your grandparents and how your grandparents used to see things, and then you look at your children and how your children see things, it's very drastically different. Like my grandparents would not be okay with people being gay. I mean, they wouldn't, they hit it. They didn't, you know, they, they, and, and now, and, and obviously I'm talking from California where, you know, in LA where people are very, you know, more open to it than let's say, you know, the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. But I do think that things are changing. And I think because of COVID and because we're all forced to sit here with our own shit, that it like just it exploded, but then people are starting to look at the aftermath of the explosion. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think that things will change for the better. I mean, I hope that they will, because we certainly can't go back to the way it's been going. No, no, we can't. You know, and I think, and I, and I, I, I like, I talk about like our business and stuff like you know, I get that we want to keep everybody safe and, 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 and make sure that, um, nobody gets COVID or whatever, but there's a lot of people that are really suffering mm -hmm. because they don't have the money to wait. 
That's right. That's correct. You know, so it's like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I had two, two, two jobs canceled. Me know? too. And I, they're okay. I didn't get paid for that. So, uh, you know, I got to go back, you know, we all have to go back to work. And I also find, you know, this is what is interesting to me. And I was talking with my manager about it during COVID. What, what has everybody turned to? Entertainers, entertainment. We've been entertaining them. Us stupid actors, you know, the, you know, the lowest on the totem pole, right? Everybody's been watching, everybody's been watching our work. We are, I believe, essential business. We are. Well, look at essential. Look at every war, every, you know, what the depression, entertainment, that's when everybody got more work in entertainment, you know, because people want escapism. They want to escape from their reality. That's the whole point, you know? Yep. But, you and know, we provided that. I, I, and I, I mean, listen, I have never watched so much TV in my life. I mean, yeah. my kids, you know, and, and, and the doctors are like, I just took them to their, their physical and the doctors, how, how many hours of screen time? I'm like, who gives a fuck? Really? Okay. You know what? I grew up watching TV. I was, I was the person who was forced to watch television. I was for, I, I would come home from school. My dad had three shows on. I think it was a team sting, uh, uh, a team riptide stingray. And I had to watch all of those shows for three hours, starting from eight to 10 or to 11 and do my homework. Wow. Yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, I was the only kid forced to watch TV. I think we have, especially with my little ones, we're going to have a generation of like architects, interior designing, city planners, through all the Minecraft and the Roblox that these kids are playing. I mean, they're really challenging themselves to, to, to entertain themselves and, and to entertain each other. But the screens, listen, you know, Law and Order SVU, Go have at it. Have fun. I mean, I, I, I started watching ER today. I was like, oh my God, I haven't watched ER in forever. I know, right? And it holds up. It still it holds, totally up. holds up. It totally holds up. Tanya, I've so enjoyed having you. You, you really have solidified the theme that I'm finding um, in, within our humanity of when tough things come, you can either tap out or you can rise to the occasion and kind of live in the crap and feel gratitude for the crap because it just brings you that much farther to growing. Well, but see the, the other thing the last thing I will say to you is with everything, there's a, there's a bad and a good. There's always a bad and a good. And I think we have to start looking for the good in the bad because we don't grow unless we go through the bad. We can't grow. If you don't, the bad is what gets you it's, it's the failures that, that people have which move them forward. Overcoming those failures and then, then when you get the successes, that's when you can really reap the benefits and the joy from it because you went through the, the difficult times. And right now, you know, it's difficult, but I do think that things will get better. I mean, I just think that we are growing as a society, you know? I have found personally and within my family 
through this past five months, I've really seen angels come out to play. I really have seen it and I have felt it. And if I have ever been shaky in my faith or having a crisis of faith, this past five months has really strengthened my resolve in, in my faith. Yeah. So yeah. I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful that I get to experience that. So, you know, I'm grateful for, for all of it. And I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your friendship. Thank you for being on my show. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time.